hello everyone. Thank you for joining us. We are here um, to introduce a few people and talk about all the questions that were left unanswered from the Methamphetamine Forum hosted by the Wise County Sheriff's Office and Wise Health System about two weeks ago. Um, we have Kelly Souther with Wise Health System, Kelly Jones, and Melanie Whittle also with Wise Health System, James Staten, Pat Berry, and Sheriff Lane Aiken, and myself, Jordan Holzbach. Uh, Sheriff, do you want to give a recap of the forum? We, we had um, an outstanding event, by my estimation, um, on August 7th um, in the women's building here at, uh, in Wise County. About 170 or so folks <coughs> were in attendance. Um, and, and this all came out of, of some posts on Facebook where we had mentioned some concern about methamphetamine and, and the evils of methamphetamine and the way that it's affecting Wise County. And the estimation that we gave from the sheriff's office was that 85% of the inmates within our jail because of methamphetamine, either directly or indirectly because of methamphetamine, um, which means that because of methamphetamine, they were involved in burglaries, they were involved in robberies, they were involved in assaults. Um, or it's just a matter of, of trafficking in methamphetamine, which is a second, first degree, second degree felony. So it's been an ongoing issue for, for us, and, and we actually see that it's, it's destroying families. So from a sheriff's office standpoint, obviously we're involved in the, in the enforcement of uh, the drug laws and, and the other violation of laws that come out, of, come out because of the use of methamphetamine. So we were wanting to look beyond that and get the input from, from the community. And, and the community outpouring and, and the community response was tremendous. <clears throat> so we don't want to just think about enforcement. We, we want to reach out to the community leaders, and, and we're thankful for the help of, of Wise Health. It's been tremendous. So that, that we can look beyond enforcement and start thinking about, talking about, and acting on education, enforcement, education, education, and treatment. So that's what that forum was about, and that's what this follow-up is about. Well, thank you very much for the recap. So um, with the 160, 170, you said, people that um, came to the forum, we had over 30 questions, and we were actually only able to get to about seven of them. We have um, a great group of people on the panel and, and here today. So we wanted to make sure we were going to address all of the leftover questions. Uh, we've got about 20 or so um, to go. So I guess we'll just uh, jump into it, and feel free to jump in at any time. Okay. Thinking of education and youth, what happened to DARE? Why doesn't it work? Is Red Ribbon Week in schools a replacement? Is that effective? DARE was, was a, an important part of the process seemingly back in the 80s. Um, over time, um, I think DARE has, has lost some of the dazzle that it had back then. And, and there's been some question about the productivity of DARE if, if it was actually doing any good. So when you read and you study about that, started in the 70s, late 70s, 80s, it was it was rolling pretty fast. And But then in the 90s, up in the 2000s, people started questioning DARE and, <clears throat> and if it works or not. Red Ribbon Week 
is still in place in the schools, and we all actively, from a law enforcement standpoint, take part in that. Um, and, and I can't help but believe that that dare, even though statistics do tend to show otherwise, when you read those statistics and exactly how those statistics were get, gathered, I, I don't know. But those statistics do tend to show that, that DARE was not that effective. However, it's all a part of the education, and we want to reach out to the children at a, at a young age. We're doing that through the school districts and through this program and what we're doing here with, in this forum. Um, but we're also doing, doing that through our SROs, our school resource officers, who are bringing programs to these children trying to touch them at an early age to, to get them headed in a direction that never takes them down the pathway of, of methamphetamine or other drugs that would do some harm. Very good. What is the most common reason someone decides to use meth? I think there are some of the reasons are social pressures. I think also um, individuals have a high sense of of depression. Others actually really like the high and they like the energy that comes with that. But I do think social pressures, peer pressure, and those that have depression are probably the most common reasons for self-medicating. I think that the problem of meth addiction is so complex, but if you think about the use of medications such as Adderall and that sort of thing that children use, teens use, college kids use, and then once that medication is gone, how do they replace that, that feeling that they got or that clarity that they got or whatever need was being met? How do they replace that if they no longer have access to those medications? And one easy way to do that, I say easy, but obviously very costly way to do that is use meth. Um, I was reading a study one time that also talked about, and this kind of contributes to what Melanie was speaking about and that gain that you get by using a drug like meth. But there was a study called the ACE study. It's the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. It refers to um, the long-term effects of a child that has had some kind of adverse experience as a child. And I'm not in any way saying that, that this is the sole reason somebody ends up using meth, but it is definitely a contributing factor. So this study just talks about the, the use of, of things that, uh, like meth and other, other um, cover-up medications, self-medicating type um, uh, resources that deal with these children that have had some kind of adverse childhood experience. So the ACE study looked at, at, at children. Um, it started around 1995, but it, then it followed them through the continuum of their life. And kids that had one or more, most of them, 87% of the ones looked at, had more than one child, uh, adverse childhood experience. But they were much more likely to develop some kind of addiction. They were also much, much more likely to end their life, to have their life ended early due to physical illness as well. So it's an interesting study um, and something that certainly there's a correlation between the ACE study and addiction itself. What I see in, in my job uh, at the district attorney's office is that it's the 
when you listen to people who've used meth, you listen to interviews that officers are doing when they've arrested people who use meth or deal in meth, it's, it's that they're chasing the high that they got when they first used meth because it made them feel superhuman or better than they'd ever, ever felt before, more capable than they've ever felt before. And so they're chasing that. And then the other thing I think is what's become a big problem more recently is that it's cheap. It's a cheap high compared to many other things that are out there, including alcohol, marijuana, and those type of things. Uh, and it's easy to get because their friends have it. So those are the things that I see. Is there some sort of medication that is available to meth users to help fight the addiction? If so, is it readily available? So I don't know of anything specifically for methamphetamines, but um, there is methadone that they use for opioid addiction, and it kind of just um, gets rid of the extra high that you get with that drug. So nothing for meth. There is actually several trials of medications that are being looked at. Um, there's two particular trials. There's also a trial that's an antibody that they're looking at as well. Um, they thought they were very close with one of the medications, and these medications, because of, I mean, and I can give you what those are. Um, one is, um, it has like numbers to it. So it's like AV. 411 and JPC 077. So there are codes for these particular medicines, and the latter of those two actually had some cardiac events. And so they're trying to look at that again and to try and remove that, but there's been a long-term study on that. And the latest is actually looking at antibodies. So it is out there, um, it is being looked at, but how far down the road we are for actual discovery and use in humans um, is, is yet to be seen. So this next question, I'm going to read it how they wrote it. This is a serious question. Do you think building the wall between the U.S. and Mexico would stop meth traffic? We'll let Lane take that one. Uh, we recognize, and, and Mr. Berry touched on it moments ago, about how cheap it is to get methamphetamine now. And um, I worked undercover in the 80s with, with DPS narcotics. And during that time, methamphetamine was selling for about $100 a gram. A gram is, is like that sweet and low packet that you see in a restaurant. That's a gram. It cost $100 in the 1980s. And, and now today, a gram of methamphetamine is costing $30 a gram. And that's because uh, the chemicals, twice, have, have been controlled. Originally, it was phenocytic acid, and then after that, it was pseudoephedrine. They were controlled. And so what that has done is driven all of the manufacturing to Mexico. And it's being manufactured in, in bulk quantities, where the labs here in Texas back in the day maybe were 15 pounds. There was a seizure just about a week ago of 50 tons of methamphetamine just outside Mexico City. So, so the quantity is, is unbelievable, and it's all coming from Mexico. So, so yes, I do believe that a wall would help. I do believe that effective border enforcement would help. It won't stop it all, but it will decrease it to such an extent that the prices will at least go back up 
and it won't be such a, a cheap high. You know, in an optimistic state of mind, I'd say it could actually decrease it to the point that it would be difficult to find methamphetamine in Texas. One thing about building a wall is it's it's got to be an all or nothing proposition because we see here in Texas that um, through the governor's uh, enforcement policies using DPS and Texas Rangers to uh, lock down the border here in Texas has, has actually worked to a great extent. Uh, the drugs are not coming over the border of Texas. They're going through Arizona and coming up through New Mexico and then coming into Texas from the north and the, and the, uh, the west. So um, if we don't build the wall all the way, uh, all the way across, then I, it, we will have the same problems we have now because they'll traffic where there isn't a wall. So. Well, that's, that's a good point, Mr. Berry, and, and I appreciate that. And you're exactly right. Because of, of the border enforcement in southern Texas, it's pushed the, the, all the drugs coming into Texas in the way of methamphetamine. It's pushed them across in, in Arizona, and then they're coming back into Texas from northwest to southeast, where used to they were going the other direction. That's because the trafficking has been curtailed to some extent in south Texas. And, and when I speak about the importance of the wall, if we were able to close portions of the border with the wall, and some of it is it's just physically impossible to build a wall in some of these locations. But what it does, it, it funnels those folks who are trying to traffic to certain areas where we can have drones, we can have personnel, we can have electronics, we can have that virtual wall in place that can stop some of this trafficking. Does Weiss Health System provide access to naloxone? So we have Narcan, uh, which is the brand name for that. We do have that available in the emergency room, and we use that for illegal drug overdoses, but then also for prescription drug overdoses. If we suspect someone's, you know, had an issue and then they've taken too much medication, whether that's intentional or um, accidental, then we do administer Narcan. That is not available in the on the streets like you hear in the the other parts of the nation. So I don't know if any of our police agencies have it or you know some some people have it in their home so I don't think that we're to that point yet we had an accreditation service last week and they ask about that because opioids are what everyone's talking about and I was able to use Sheriff Aiken's um, statement from the forum and say you know opioids aren't our issue that methamphetamines are our issue so um, we don't have Narcan in the community but that was a question of theirs I also wanted to address this from the fact that um, that is also the naloxone is a, a component of Suboxone, which Suboxone is also being used to treat um, addictions. So there are some providers that have licensing to provide Suboxone that can also provide that. And sometimes that is a, a, another medication that can be used to help those individuals with their addictions. So I had actually heard that you can just go buy Narcan like at Walmart. Can you not do that? Because I've heard that in other parts, and maybe that's what you're talking about, other parts of Texas and the country, drug dealers, are, when they are giving drugs or selling drugs to whoever's buying them, they'll give them a can of Narcan with it so that way they have a return customer. 
Well, um, I haven't heard of that anywhere here, certainly not in Wise County at our Walmart, but not to say that it doesn't happen because, you I mean, there are people that are carrying it, individuals, not just police and hospitals, so that could be. Do we have local social media help available? So I can take this one. I know that uh, the Wise County Messenger has been instrumental in getting all of the education out and announcements about what we're doing um, into the community. We also have a Facebook page. Um, Wise Health System has a Facebook page. The Sheriff's Office has a Facebook page. Uh, we have a Wise County Community Health Improvement page. So the news, I would say the newspaper and through those social media outlets, is that's how we get most of our education out there. The, um, the emergency department at Wise Health System is also producing uh, posters uh, specific to methamphetamine use, the signs and symptoms for parents, what they should look for. I don't know, Kelly, you want to elaborate? So when I went back and talked to our social worker about it, I, I felt the need to put something in the waiting room. So we made a little homemade methamphetamine board, and marketing's like, oh, yeah, we can put that in a much nicer poster. So we're doing that, and we'll be able to put that on social media. But the thing that she said that really surprised me was that um, she had met a mom who her daughter was doing meth, and she said, I didn't know the signs, so I didn't realize so I think that's why it's really important to educate the public so that, you know, if they know something's not right, then they know, you know, what the signs and symptoms are. If you know for a fact that someone is using drugs, should Crime Stoppers be called, what will be done? Crime Stoppers is, is a very effective tool, and, and there are a lot of folks who are, are greatly concerned about the anonymity. Um, and those folks who call in through Crime Stoppers, just so that in general you know, those calls are routed to Canada, and, and they're answered in a call center in Canada. So for us then to try to identify who the caller is, it makes it totally impossible because the process that comes from uh, the courts, <clears throat> a subpoena, uh, a search warrant, uh, any number of, of issues or, or warrants that we might send to Canada won't be recognized because it's out of the country. So anonymity is intact. Um, but it, it is important that folks contact us via Crime Stoppers. And, and when, when those tips come in and land on the desk of our captain who oversees Crime Stoppers, that tip will be reviewed and it will be passed on to the investigator who's responsible or to the city of responsibility. So it's not just going to be the Wise County Sheriff's Office. If something comes in and it's related to an issue at the city of, in the city of Decatur, it will be passed on to Decatur PD, same thing with Bridgeport PD, and on down the line. But we take all of those tips very seriously, and they will be followed up on. And if uh, the tip leads to, to the arrest or seizure of methamphetamine, the tipster will be awarded a certain amount of money that is decided upon by the Crime Stoppers Board made up of citizens of Wise County. Do you have that phone number? Do you know it? It is 940-627-TIPS, T-I-P-S. Awesome. Thank you, Lane. What programs do we have in place to reduce recidivism? As a county attorney, we handle all the misdemeanor offenses uh, in the county. And uh, you may not think that methamphetamines would affect people that have DWIs or domestic violence or theft or whatever. Um, you would be wrong. Uh, many, many of our cases involving domestic violence have a drug and or alcohol, primarily alcohol. But we're seeing more and more 
that are both drug and alcohol. Um, as my office does uh, the protective orders for domestic violence victims in the county, um, and I meet with these victims personally, I find on a consistent basis, in fact, I had two or three this morning, all of which had a methamphetamine component to it. Um, and uh, th these were everyday regular people, like, that, you know, they weren't like, you know, bums living on the street. These were everyday regular people that one party got involved in methamphetamines and also probably had an alcohol or other drug problem, and then it spiraled out of control, and now they're abusing their spouse and what have you. So we see that a lot. Now, when you talk about recidivism, um, what you're really talking about is once you've dealt with them once in the system, what do you put in place to help them not be back in the system again? Um, you know, Mr. Barry and I both deal with people that have extensive criminal histories that are repeat offenders. Um, we all, often call them frequent flyers because uh, we see them all the time on the same issues. And for example, we get thieves and they're all on meth and we see them over and over and over and over and over. And so the real question is, you know, what's out there to keep them from being these back in the system, repeat offenders, just rolling through? Um, on my end, uh, we work very closely with our probation department, um, and probation will mandate, you know, classes, drug therapy, counseling, outpatient programs, inpatient programs. I mean, all of the resources are all out there for both felony and misdemeanor probation. And we can make them do it uh, from the court. Um, the real question is, is, um, is getting it to stick. Um, recidivism is two pieces. It's one, it's the government's, you know, kind of influence on you to get you to not do bad things again, but it's also your own choice of you choosing to live a different life. So th th those two have to meet for us to avoid, um, you know, re recidivism. And we have access to all kinds of state-sponsored programs once you're in the criminal justice system. Um, but, uh, and, and they do have a, I would say, a pretty good, at least on the misdemeanor end of the world, we don't get too many people that are back in the game again. Um, unless they're the consistent thieves or what have you. Once we get involved, we get somebody out of that environment, you know, they tend to stay out of it. Um, but we do get some frequent flyers. As James was saying, um, there are a lot of programs out there. I mean, everything from the faith-based programs like Celebrate Recovery. Um, uh, I think there's a Embrace Grace or Hope for Restoration, a couple of those. Those are all faith-based programs. There's also um, there's Star Council, and then there's programs through the uh, Texas Department of Criminal Justice like uh, Safe and IPTC, which is they're essentially in-prison treatment centers. Um, and the, the goal of all of those things is to help people keep from going back to um, the lifestyle that got them there to begin with. Um, uh, one thing that, that we do, and uh, we try to start with, a, with you know, a, prog a progressive type punishment structure where you have um, pretrial diversion if somebody's never been in trouble before and they're a young offender and something like, so it gives them a chance to stay out of the criminal justice system altogether. And if that doesn't work, then you have deferred adjudication, which you're still, they're in the criminal justice system, but they have the opportunity not to uh, have a conviction if they successfully complete that. 
and then you have probation, and then you ultimately the penitentiary. But at all levels, I mean, I think we all recognize that throwing somebody in a cage um, for however long it is isn't going to solve their problem. If, if you don't deal with the underlying issues, when they get out, they're going to go right back to it. You know, one of the things, if you kind of think about, um, if, you're, if you were to demonstrate feeling good and feeling great, the difference between feeling good and feeling great is fairly minimal. But if you start with the feeling of feeling awful and you go to feeling great, there's a big gain there. And so the people who begin that are often feeling bad. And so that level of gain, and I'm using my hand as though you can see this, but that level of gain is significant. Be, you know, they get more gain from that euphoria than somebody who's already feeling good. And one of the bad things about after you're trying to stop is that first period of trying to stop, you're, you're so focused on those urges and those cravings that you don't think about anything else. That's all you can focus on. So your first step of treatment has to be to deal with those urges and cravings. But then the next step, which is further out, is all the guilt and the shame and all of those things that come along with the behaviors that got you in the justice system, the behaviors that lost your family, the behaviors that lost your children, that lost your job, whatever it is. Then you have the emotional pain and the guilt and all of that. And that comes further down the road. So there you are. You're landed back in that feeling awful, and you just want to go back to that euphoria of feeling great again. So treatment has to be longer than 30 days. The treatment has to be a long period of time through support, through various um, various ways. Can I say one more thing while she's getting the microphone? One of the things that is a, a risk not only for recidivism, but actually making the problem worse, I think, sometimes, is when we force people to go to certain programs. And you have a lot of, lot of people that are forced to go there at the same time, have the same mindset that they don't really want to be there. And what ends up happening is those people get together and collaborate with each other, and they will actually encourage people into... Uh, encourage each other and um, teach them how to commit more crimes, how to do drugs a certain way where they won't get caught, and how to hide uh, urine results and things like that, which ultimately makes a problem worse. So there, there has to be a voluntariness component um, in order for uh, a program to truly work and, and re actually reduce recidivism. At Wise Region, we've got um, what I would call a continuum of care, and so if individuals are having a real difficult time and need to go through detox, um, they can come in patient, but then what we do is we will do referrals out to what is called Pathways Intensive Outpatient Program, and that actually gives them a longer term in an outpatient setting, but it's intense to where they're having three hours a day three to five days a week. Um, sometimes it's not that long, but they it is a group setting and it's not just um, the therapist leading those groups, but it's the peer support that those individuals obtain from one another. Um, we also always encourage a lot of other support groups in the outside as well to help them. 
um, there is a component of doing drug screenings to make sure that they're also remaining um, compliant with whatever their treatment regimens are. And then again, we'd already talked about Suboxone, um, which is also one of the treatment methods that's used for those that meet um, that criteria. So it is a, a little more of an intensive, but not just an individual therapy type model. What is the difference between medical amphetamine that is prescribed and methamphetamine? So both are a stimulant. Um, the difference is that amphetamines are a much lower dose and they don't have the quick high that methamphetamines do. Um, I mean, and I can give you kind of funny stories about when meth um, and, and, and actually amphetamine started, which was back with the Japanese. Um, and they actually used that. Also, they used it in wartime to keep our, our soldiers and so forth um, alert and having a lot of energy. What happened after... Um, the war ended as Japan had all this extra meth available. So it started going into Europe and it really spread. So anyway, it, it started out, you know, as a, as a legal drug in that method. Um, but truly medical is being used for individuals that um, have narcolepsy and have ADHD. And those are the things that was prescribed for. A little bit later on, it was then placed into a different component, a different medication that was actually used for weight loss as well. So with meth, of course, you, you talked about the potency, um, and that's part of the issue. It actually has two of the components medically that amphetamines does, but then it has the precursor um, that generally um, Mexico is using, which is like P2P. It's a very long word. Um, and other things that, that are cut into it that make the methamphetamine 95% um, pure, and that's part of what the issue is with the addiction. And then Kelly had mentioned Adderall, which, um, you know, that has also been used um, with the ADHD individuals. So it kind of has continued on. What does meth smell like? You criminal guys are probably the only ones that have been close to it <laughs> compared to us. In the days when methamphetamine was being manufactured here in the United States, <clears throat> the, the most overwhelming odor that, that you would get was ether be, because it was the ether that they used to powder out the liquid and turn it into to crystalline methamphetamine. There also it, it also has a smell of acetone, but, but now we're noticing that this methamphetamine coming from Mexico has very little smell. It's probably easier to identify by sight than it is by, by smell. Of course, we're cautioning all of our guys, which we, we haven't before, we're, we're cautioning them not to, to smell the powder because of the fentanyl scare. Uh, just a small amount of fentanyl can possibly kill someone. So it's, it's best not to attempt to smell uh, methamphetamine or anything else that you suspect might be methamphetamine. It's better to call law enforcement and have law enforcement pick that up for testing um, because of the dangers of fentanyl that we're just now seeing come into to Wise County in North Texas. Do you guys have or do the police agencies have those testers that you see for like marijuana and stuff so they can test it right on the spot? We, we do have test kits. Of course, marijuana is so easy to identify. We, we generally just send that off to the lab. And in order for the prosecutors to take a case, we have to have that, that lab report back so that it 
positively identifies what the substance is. But we're not allowing our people to test. We do have the test kits, but because, again, because of fentanyl, we're not testing on scene. Instead, we're packaging that and sending it to a crime lab. Since illegal drug use is a battle we're losing, perhaps we should think outside the box. We learned during Prohibition we shouldn't stop people from drinking alcohol, and when Pro Prohibition was overturned, the problem got better. As controversial as it is, do you think legalizing drugs would help us win the battle? You know, it's, it's odd that, that the question is submitted and it, it mentions prohibition <clears throat> because when alcohol was prohibited back in the 1900s, 1918, 1919, 1920s, when prohibition was in, in place, the, all the alcohol went to Mexico <clears throat> and it was trafficked back across the border or in Canada and coming back across the border. And so that's now what we have here is methamphetamine is coming from Mexico. So there are some similarities to prohibition. But, but what, what concerns me, and, and I've had this discussion with, with many folks, um, what concerns me are the children. What do we want our children to be exposed to? Uh, right now when we, we look across the United States, we see several states have, have legalized marijuana. And, and even I recognize here the kids in, in Wise County see it as, as a non-issue. It's just like smoking a cigarette to them. Even though it's illegal still in the state of Texas and it's illegal federally, uh, they think it's okay because it's legal in Colorado, the state law. But in my conversation uh, with the officers in Colorado, the officers in, in Washington State, the officers in, in California, and the things that I see on the news and I, and I read, that situation is not getting better <clears throat> behind uh, legaliza legalizing marijuana. Because there's, there's more truancy, there are more visits to the hospital, there, there are more uh, basically DWI arrests, the jails are getting overcrowded, so it's turning that situation into a very difficult um, issue to handle. It's, they're having to hire more law enforcement officers as well. So, so we've got examples as they've legalized marijuana, and part of the big selling factor was the fact that they can make so much more money because they'll tax marijuana. Well, they've had to hire and add hospital staff. They've had, had to hire more law enforcement <coughs> officers. So that's absorbing, absorbing the additional money. And so when we, we think about the most abused drug, I, I, I would gather that we probably would all agree that the most abused drug is alcohol because it's so readily available and it's available to the kids. And so often the kids find themselves in a significant bind or in the hospital or, or even dead because of the abuse of, of alcohol. So by my estimation, we've got two legal drugs, nicotine and alcohol, and the pharmaceuticals by prescription. Nicotine and alcohol, <clears throat> and how many folks are being killed by nicotine? How many folks are dying because of alcohol? Do we want to legalize more? I think not. From a practical perspective, I mean, you look at opiates, and even amphetamine, and there are legal forms of amphetamine, um, and in in the end, those end up being a lot of times gateway 
into use of the illegal form of whatever it is. If you're if it's opiates and you start with hydrocodone or get in an accident or something, some have some type of surgery and you're on oxycontin or oxycodone, you know when that prescription runs out, uh, it's so easy to uh, obtain and it's cheap, in fact, to obtain. Um, heroin for those people and in the form of amphetamine and Adderall and things like that and the same thing is true for methamphetamine and you have uh, Legalizing those thing those drugs is not going to solve the problem uh, Because what's going to happen is those drugs just like uh, the sheriff was saying in Colorado There's still illegal marijuana everywhere um, That is not regulated um, People are going and buying in bulk quantities that you can't get legally in Colorado, and they're bringing it back down here to Texas. That's how we know this is true. And so methamphetamine is not going to go away if they legalize it. The illegal form of methamphetamine is not going to go away. It's too cheap to make, um, so we've got to think of other ways other than trying to legalize it. I think this question presumes that the alcohol problem has gotten better. I disagree with that. Um, I don't think the alcohol problem got better. It just got more societally accepted. Uh, we accept it more. It is more something we don't feel as bad about when we see the other people having a social drink or what have you. But from my experience, and uh, Mr. Barry has been a lawyer a little longer than me, I think he'll agree with me, alcohol fuels a huge portion of our violent crime it fuels I would say upwards of 90% of our domestic violence crime um, so I don't know that the problem has actually got any better I think it's more accepted alcohol is um, but I don't think it's gotten any better we still have tons of DWIs um, that's not slowed down since I took office um, and so I don't think it's gotten any better the second part of this here when you talk about legalizing drugs I don't think people understand the true evil that is methamphetamines I don't think people understand it they want to equate it with legalized marijuana or alcohol and they are sorely mistaken you have not seen an evil substance like you have with methamphetamines. There is nothing else like it in the world. And I'll give you an example. I was a defense attorney for, I don't know, seven, eight years. And I had my clients, a lot of them addicts, old school addicts. I had many of them tell me, man, I kicked alcohol, I kicked heroin, I kicked cigarettes, whatever, but I can't even get close to kicking methamphetamines. And these are old school dopers. These are guys who've been through the system, they've been through the treatment, everything else. And I had many people say, I, I can't kick it. I just don't think people really, really, truly understand the level of addiction that comes with it. Um, I think if they did, then the legalization question would never come up. And for me personally, as a guy who has kids, I don't need any more vices. I've got enough vices in the world for my kids. I've got enough social media. I've got enough alcohol and drugs, prescription medications that are out there. I, I don't need another one. Uh, for my kids. Do you still offer Crime Stopper signs to place within communities? Yes, we, we do have those signs, and we, we also have the, the Wise Eye, which is a crime prevention uh, network. <clears throat> we do have those programs up and running, and we do have the signs available. And where, how do they, how do people get 
hold of those? They can come by the sheriff's office the, uh, the, through the south doors to the lobby, and we will make those available. Are children able to make reports to Crime Stoppers, and do they get the same attention slash respect as an adult would? Uh, they do uh, get the get the same attention, and, and just as much, if not more, respect, um, because we really appreciate the um, the honesty of a child. So, anyone who calls in through Crime Stoppers will get get the same uh, reaction, the same respect, and we'll follow up on every one of them. Why is bond set so low, and why does the district attorney allow them to plea down and only probation is given? When a person is arrested, the bond is generally set by justice of the peace, and so there is some variance uh, at times between different justice of the pieces, and uh, I don't know if that's correctly said, but justices of the peace, I should say. Um, as to what they will set on various types of cases. And oftentimes, um, the justice of the peace uh, for an individual case may not know, may not have the information as to what a person's criminal history is at the time that they set the bond for that offense. So um, once it gets to the district attorney's office, and we have the person's criminal history in front of us, then we can make a better determination as to whether or not we should agree to lower a bond, seek a higher bond, um, or what to do from that point. With regard to probation, um, if you start off throwing them into a cage at the very beginning, as we addressed earlier, it's not going to do any good. You've got to, you've got to work with a progressive punishment um, structure so that you can try to catch somebody when they are very, when they first um, feel the weight of getting arrested for the first time and try to help them to voluntarily make a life change so that they don't go back to that. Um, and that's what the whole structure of pretrial diversion, probate, uh, deferred adjudication and probation are. They're, they're a graduated increasing punishment structure so that ultimately hopefully the people that we're actually putting behind bars are the ones that really need to be there um, the ones that are delivering the drugs or just for they continue to commit crimes over and over again and therefore there's no they have shown through their own actions that there's nothing nothing else we can do but lock them up and I, I completely agree with what Mr. Berry is, is saying there because it's it's true. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is the purpose of the bond. I think a lot of people think it's it's uh, if you commit a crime that they think is bad, you should have a million-dollar bond. You should never get out of jail. Um, well, the courts over the last 50 years have said you can't use the bond system just as the sole purpose of oppressing people because when you set a million-dollar bond, then, well, only certain people that have money can get out of jail. Uh, the true purpose of the bond is simply to make sure people show up to court. It's uh, you got to put some skin in the game to make sure you show up to court. Now we we look at that bond as part of the whole system. That the people who commit more heinous offenses are the ones that are least likely to show up to court because they have the most to lose and they don't want to be in the system. So therefore, the bonds are higher. So people need to understand the whole bond system. But the idea of probation and when you look at this question is that. Um, there are a group of folks that say, hey, people commit a crime, they should just go to jail, just go to prison. Um, number one, prison is frighteningly expensive 
uh, for the state and the taxpayers in this entire state. And it's been proven over many, many years that simply going directly from offense to prison uh, only creates better criminals. Um, so um, even on the misdemeanor level, um, the, the way the system is set up is to assuming you don't have an extensive criminal history, because I know Mr. Berry deals with people that have extensive criminal histories. When he does, they get a prison offer. I can be fairly confident of that. Am I right, Mr. Yes, Berry? Sir. They've already proven themselves to be not, you know, not subject to public consumption, if you will. Okay? Same thing happens on misdemeanor cases as well. If you're a multi-time DWI offender, I'm not going to put you back on probation, dude. You've kind of proven you can't do that, and... And, and, and you're going to go hang out in our county for a while. But for most people, you know, we find that, it, that we get them on probation and we put a little heat on them and get them going to doing things and, and doing things. The people that are going to respond, respond. The people that don't end up in prison. Pretty simple. If I could add one more thing I think is relevant to this, and some people may look at a situation and think, the, the state or the district attorney's office is not doing a good job because this person got probation on a case and maybe they've been to prison before. Okay, And I will tell you as a person, the, the primary person in this county that deals with felony drug cases, is, is that if I look at a person's criminal history, and even if they've been to prison before, but I see that they were convicted, they were given a, a, immediately, as James just said, they were sent straight to prison on their first time because that was the easy thing to do or whatever. That's what they wanted to do. They had enough time credit. They wanted to get a prison sentence rather than going through the pain that probation is. And it is a pain. It's, it's, it's work. They have to think about it, what they're doing and what their actions are doing. And so if they've done that a time, maybe even tw more than once, they've been in jail. But they've never gotten the opportunity for treatment. Um, I will sometimes... Um, still offer somebody uh, like deferred adjudication on a habitual felon case, meaning that they would plead guilty, they would plead true to their priors, and they would have this 25 to life sentence hanging over them as motivation to successfully complete their probation, but they've never had that chance before. I will sometimes still give them that chance. Um, regardless of what public opinion may be about that, I still think it's the right thing to do. What kind of interactions or check-ins can be or already exist when users are released from jail and if the family has no interest in the users bettering themselves? The probation department has, um, when a person is arrested uh, they're in a bonds out of jail, we can ask for conditions to be put on their bonds. Some, sometimes, like with DWIs, that might be a scram device that tests um, the alcohol content in your body. Um, for drug cases, uh, you may have them check in uh, regularly, up to once a week, and, and perform uh, in urinalysis uh, it, so that you're keeping track over them. There are check-in um, type programs that are available. The problem is that um, we're over overloaded and overwhelmed uh, to be able to do that. Uh, I mean, so while it's, yes, it's possible, a lot of times it doesn't happen because it's just not, um, we're not able to handle the capacity that that would require.
Do we have Crime Stoppers uh, available in the county schools? We do. Uh, the Wise County Sheriff's Office has SROs in on five different campuses, five different ISDs. <clears throat> in all of those ISDs, as, as well as the three where we don't have SROs, and that would be Boyd, Bridgeport, and Decatur. So in, in those ISDs, we, we do have Crime Stoppers, and, and we have payment methods that are already in place with those schools, and there are posters in those schools also directing the kids to the number. And, and one thing that those kids may want to know or the parents may want to know to tell, tell those kids, they can actually text Crime Stoppers as well and still maintain that anonymity. And the text is the same number? It is. Are there any statistics that support the success of educational prevention ad campaigns? I can speak to one study. Um, it actually was done by the um, Center for Substance Prevention, and this was with about 10,000 um, kids of, of youth. And what it basically did is it showed that they did have a reduction in the use um, of drugs, but like especially with the males, that that tended to fade after like 18 months. Um, I think the thing that was the most important that came out of that was that they said that they gained insight as the, to the type of services, and they said it definitely needed to be evidence-based, having a clear purpose. Um, they maintained intensive contact with the youth, and they also provided things that were after-school hours. Um, the females tended to respond better to life skills, and the boys was to connectedness with peers and adults. So it at least gave a little bit of insight, and that was from the American Psychological Association, so just one small study. I'm sure there's a lot of other statistics out there as well. What is the recidivism rate of those incarcerated in Wise County for meth-related crimes? I don't know exactly uh, what the statistics are, but, but just from personal observation, uh, it's high, and and I would say probably, and, and both of the prosecutors have, have mentioned this, I would say somewhere north of 90%. And we're hoping that, that through this forum, through this podcast, through the partnerships that we formed here, that maybe we can reduce that recidivism rate. Will law enforcement agencies promote the ministries involved in recovery, such as Embrace Grace, Hope for Restoration, celebra Celebrate Recovery, by providing handouts to those affected? Yes, we, we not only will, but, but we are um, promoting those things. Um, and and the, one of the things that, that we are appreciating immediately as a result of this partnership is understanding and identifying what those resources are so that, that we can, can post those for the inmates. And we haven't been doing this yet, but, but maybe we'll even be putting a slip of paper, a, a list with their property when they leave that these are the different programs that are available so that they might voluntarily attend. That's a great idea. Is there such thing as a functional meth user who can only use, who can just use occasionally? So social use, they say is um, that they can use meth just to de decrease inhibitions. Functional use, that they use meth to um, have an enabling effect, like to get through work. And then dependent use is where they're compulsive seeking that type of use. 
I don't know if anyone has an opinion on how fast that escalates to me. I don't think you could do long-term social use because of the addictive um, nature. I think it's so uncertain because it's just like alcohol in that certain people, they have one drink and they just can't live without it. Um, and other people can drink just one drink every once in a while and it'll be fine. But with meth, um, like I said, the main reason I believe people continue to chase it is because they're chasing what they felt like the very first time that they used it. And that that superhuman feeling is something that they're trying to regain. And you don't know which person that's going meth's going to hit like that. And um, unlike alcohol, I really think it's it, it is such a an addiction addictive substance that a person could truly take one hit and then be completely addicted uh, after that. You know, I think it speaks again to that gain, you know, somebody's gain that they get from the reward that they get from that. So the greater the reward, the more likely you are to chase that. And so if a person is is just, um, you know, whether depression or other things that cause that that reward to be greater, then that's gonna, that person is going to have a harder time not utilizing that drug on an ongoing basis. I did family law for an extended period of time, and I also worked in CPS cases um, for quite a long time before I took office in 09. And you start to get to know people that you're doing divorces with and whatever, and you start talking to them. And the sheriff's absolutely correct. Methamphetamines just absolutely wrecks families. But to answer this question, I had quite a few of the ones that were getting divorced because of drug use or methamphetamine use. It started out um, as you're with your friends and you're at a party, and each of you do a little bit of dope, and it's all a big party. Maybe you're drinking a little bit, and no big deal. At least that's what they think. And you can see how it goes where one person says, well, I'm not going to be involved with that anymore. That was not good. That was too much. I'll just stick to drinking or whatever. And then the other person goes off on this path of, of, of uh, drug use. And the same thing with people who use it to find a little extra energy. A lot of them are in a, you know, working two jobs. Uh, actually, with some people that I had actually had good motivations. You know, their buddy says, hey, try a little bit of this. It'll help get you through your next job. You know, that they're actually, their motivation initially is to try to do something for their family. I don't know that in my 18 years of being a lawyer that I've ever seen someone who just did methamphetamines off and on and did not get addicted to it. I, I don't, I honestly don't think I've ever seen one. And I've represented thousands of people and I've prosecuted as, as many or more and I honestly don't think I've ever seen one that can just go in and out. I've seen people that'll go and do party drugs like X or Molly's or whatever and they do it off and on. I've seen people drink off and on. I've seen people smoke marijuana off and on. Prescription painkillers off and on. Never seen anybody with meth do it off and on. And that's 18 years I've seen people on both sides of it. I, I feel like I got a pretty good perspective. How do you eliminate the human sources trafficking meth? We, we've talked about that much um, here today. And, and I, it starts with enforcement in Mexico. Uh, and 
I spoke about a significant seizure, um, several tons, hundreds of tons, thousands of tons that have been seized in Mexico. So if the U.S. law enforcement could interface with Mexican law enforcement, that would provide some level of a help. And, and then we, we talked about the wall, the physical wall, the virtual wall, the human enforcement there. And then we continually, local law enforcement, state and law enforcement, we continually seek, pursue, arrest those who are trafficking here in the United States and present those cases to, to the prosecutor's offices to try to stop that locally as well. And, and then the, the big part is people recognizing uh, what methamphetamine is, the devastation that it brings, and then asking them and having them call Crime Stoppers or call their local law enforcement, come to the sheriff's office, go to the police departments, and tell us what you're seeing so that, that we can enforce those, um, those laws even more stringently uh, here in, in Wise County. With regard to eliminating the sources, uh, there's a big, there's a difference between an addict and a dealer or a distributor of, of these types of drugs. Sometimes they are the same. And a lot of times the low-level street people are actually addicts themselves who are selling the drugs so that they can get some free for themselves. But the people above them at various levels moving all the way back into the cartels in Mexico, you know, those are the people that we're really, really targeting. As the sheriff just said, when a person um, is in the shown over and over again that they are carrying large amounts of drugs, distrib distribution amounts of drugs, and they're carrying other things that show that they're distributing, like scales and baggies and money, things like that. Those are the people that we're really, really trying to go after. I mean, right at the, during the time we had the forum, we were in the middle of a trial on a, a distributor who had uh, been down to the penitentiary three times before and run from the police on, on various occasions. And in the, on this particular occasion, ran from the police in a vehicle, had a quarter pound of methamphetamine with them, which is about four ounces. And... Um, we didn't prosecute him on the methamphetamine case. We prosecuted him on the evading arrest because we were able to get a deadly weapon finding in that case. He got 50 years in prison, and he has to serve 25 of that before he's even eligible for parole. So we got one off the street. That's eliminating a source, a human source, of a trafficking meth. But that has to happen one, one at a time. Um, and it happens in... That individual makes a difference, but it also sends a message to other people like them. If you're going to do this, don't come to Wise County because we're not going to tolerate it. And so that's another way that we can uh, eliminate the sources by sending that message as loudly as we can. So that is the end of the questions from the forum that we had. Um, so I guess our next thing to ask is what is our plan of action? What are we going to do, step one, to try and... Um, eliminate meth addiction and trafficking and use in Wise County? It, it's been an education, I think, for us all, this, this journey, really just over the last couple of months as, as we, we have formed these partnerships. 
Um, so I go back to, to the original statement. We'll continue looking at enforcement. We'll continue looking at education. And we'll continue looking at treatment. And, and so the thing that's come out of this to this point is, is all of those options that are available. That in reality, we weren't aware of all of these different faith-based and other treatment programs that are out there, as well as understanding what the hospital allows for, for these pursuits and trying to help some of these people turn away and not take those pathways toward methamphetamine. So we'll continue to improve. We'll continue to hear from the public, and, and we, we ask them to... Uh, to come to the sheriff's office, go to their police departments, come to y'all, seek out the counselors to uh, try to alleviate some of the difficulties that they face because they've got a family member who's fallen into this trap of methamphetamine, <clears throat> a trap that leads nowhere good. And we'll ask that that those folks, folks stay involved and they keep us informed so that, that we can help them along that journey. Um, I would also like to mention that uh, Wise Health System has a community health improvement initiative, and one of the uh, big things that we found when we identified the needs within the county is mental health and substance abuse, and we created a committee that entirely looks at mental health and substance abuse issues in Wise County. So we have meetings monthly. They're held at the Decatur Public Library um, from 10 to 11 a.m. on the third Thursday of each month. Um, Sheriff Aiken is a part of that committee, Kelly Jones, Kelly Souther, uh, Melanie Whittle as well. We're still working on Pat and, and James, but we'll see if they come. Um, so that is a completely open to the public committee meeting. Uh, we had a lot of people that attended the forum um, that had a lot of interest, a lot of uh, recovering addicts and those that have uh, conquered addiction that want to provide us with the the right education that worked for them and what um, how we can apply what worked for them at, at a larger scale and, and roll it out into the community. So please come if, uh, if you're able. If you'd like more information, I have an email address. Um, it's info at healthywiseco.com. Um, we've got a website as well, healthywiseco.com. And we've got everything listed on there if you'd like to be a part of those committees as well. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening, and I want to give a big shout out to the Decatur Public Library for allowing us to uh, use their equipment and time um, to record this follow-up podcast. Um, thank you to all of our panel uh, members for the time you've committed today, and uh, we can't wait to see what, what's going to happen out of this. Thanks so much.